in verse 9. doing that? What am I doing? I'm standing here. I believe you got it short right there. Okay. Trying to figure out how to turn this off. Yeah, I'll just use this mic right here. I think it'll pick me up. I'll try to stay close to it. Right, Revelation chapter 1, let's start reading verse 9. I'm going to talk to you tonight. Of course, we're in Revelation talking about the king is coming. I want to talk to you tonight under the heading of he holds the keys. Let's start reading verse 9. <clears throat> Wait a minute, where am I at? I guess I would get the right book. It would help if we're going to be on the same page together, wouldn't it? I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was banished to the prison island of Patmos for preaching the gospel, for sharing Jesus. Now, verse 10, he said, says, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps or the chest with a golden girdle or a golden belt or band. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last." I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Father, tonight as we look at this passage and study it and, and uh, Father, see the picture that is being painted for us here, uh, I pray that we would uh, look at it with the eyes of our heart and hear with the ears of our heart, uh, see what you're showing us. Not what maybe someone else has told us, not what uh, uh, preconceived ideas that we had, but we would see this picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the reigning, risen Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we look at this, that it will encourage us, that it will inspire us, but it will also as, children, as your children, and as believers, God, it will bring the comfort that we need for the days that are ahead. In Christ's name, amen. 
Now, folks, has it ever occurred to you that as much as we're told about the Lord Jesus Christ in the books, in the Gospels, and in the New Testament, there, we're never told what he looks like. There's never been a portrait or a picture painted that truly shows Jesus Christ because we don't know for sure what he looks like. Now, I know there's been a lot of great paintings uh, over the years and people that have portrayed Jesus on canvas. But, folks, the only true description that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ is found right here in what we just read in the book of Revelation. Now, granted, the description that we have read here is a uh, figurative uh, description, <coughs> but it is the only one that we have. And, and I don't believe that it could be painted and do it justice. In fact, knowing that this is figurative language, I doubt that even this description here does full justice to the risen Lord. Now, remember, as we study this, it's been 60 years, over 60 years, actually, since John had seen the Lord Jesus. And John hears a voice, it says, like a trumpet, and he turns to see where the voice comes from, and he sees, look at verse 13, he sees one like unto the Son of Man, or like the Son of Man. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think it's extremely informative and important that we grasp the meaning here that John saw one like the Son of Man, not just the Son of God, but the Son of Man, because as much as we emphasize the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we also must never forget the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is forevermore a man. Jesus was not a man before his incarnation. He, he was God, uh, God alone, always has been God, always will be God. But he was born a man, he lived a man, he died a man, he raised a man, and he's now forever a man. Now, having said that, I'm going to blow your mind because I want you to think about something. To me, it's a staggering thought to consider and to realize there is a man on the throne in heaven, the God-man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, the title, Son of Man, folks, that describes the humanity of Jesus, and it's used 85 times in the gospel. It's one of the, uh, one of the, the favorite titles of Jesus himself because... Eighty-three of those 85 times, Jesus is referencing himself when he uses it. So it's his favorite title. And I believe that Jesus loved for people to know that he was not just God, but he was indeed a man. He was the God-man. Now, having said all that, one of the questions many times pastors get asked is, Preacher, when we get to heaven, who are we going to see? What God are we going to see? We're going to see God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to say, first of all, we're only going to see one God because there's only one God. Some people have the misconception, the idea that there are three gods. But the reason why we're only going to see one God and not three gods, let me say it again, is because there's only one God. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The NASB has it this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one God. Now, I believe, folks, the person that we're going to see, the actual person of the Godhead we're going to see, in fact, the only God we're ever going to see is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the Old Testament, he was called Jehovah. In the New Testament, he's called Jesus. But he is the great God that we're going to see, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very serious picture, and let me say this before we get started. I told Brother Ald, I said, this is either going to be a long study tonight or two short studies. We'll finish it next week. I don't know. We'll see how far we get. 
Uh, you say, well, couldn't you plan any better than that? There's a lot of detail in these verses we just read. And for me to unpack it, and unpack it in a way where everybody can understand what's being said, it may take a little longer than normal. So, we'll go until I see you begin to nod off, and then I'll call it off, and we'll go next week, all right? But I want, you to, say, I want to say this right from the start, folks. The picture of Jesus that we have painted for us and portrayed for us here in this passage is one that many people have never thought about. When they think of Jesus, they think of the one side of Jesus, the meek and mild lamb led to the slaughter who died for the sins of the world, the Savior Jesus. Understand, this picture is not talking about a Savior. It's talking about a sovereign. It's talking about a king. So I want you to get that in your heart, uh, in your head and down in your heart. This is a very serious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe if it was taken seriously by those who read it, I believe that the readers would think a lot more seriously about Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, folks, people better get serious about Jesus because if they're not serious about Jesus, they're going to be doomed without Jesus. Now, I realize in today's society, many people view Jesus as a joke. Jesus is not a joke. We better understand he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. <clears throat> but this picture is not only to be taken seriously, it's also to be taken symbolically. You're going to see as we analyze piece by piece the description of the Lord Jesus Christ that it is a figurative description. But remember, I've told you this before, folks, symbolic language, it still delineates literal truth. And the symbolic picture of the Lord Jesus reveals some literal eternal truths that I think we need to learn about our risen Lord. So number one, look at verse 13. The first thing I want you to see is he's described as the commanding Christ. Now this son of man that John saw, it says in verse 13, he was clothed with a garment down to his feet and he was girded about the chest with a golden band or a golden girdle. Now this describes the authority of the Lord Jesus. The long flowing garment, it refers to the regal robes of a judge. Okay, it, it, it's the dress of a magistrate. When Isaiah, now here's the verse we use in the Old Testament to back this up. When Isaiah had his vision in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord in his throne high and lifted up, and his train did fill the temple. That's what he's speaking of. The regal robes, folks, the, the robes of a magistrate. When Isaiah saw that, he saw the long flowing robe. It's judicial authority that's being spoken of. Now, it's important to understand. The picture in the book of the Revelation of the Lord Jesus is not, and I've already said it, but I'm going to say it a couple more times, is not someone who is coming as a Savior. He came as a Savior the first time. In the Gospels, He came as a Savior. The picture we have in the book of the Revelation is somebody coming as a judge. And every human being who has ever lived has a date with deity. Every person who has ever lived one day, face to face, they're going to meet Jesus Christ. Now, you'll either meet Him as your Savior, and you've heard me say this, and I don't know how many times, you'll either meet Him as your Savior, or you'll meet Him as your judge. If you don't meet Him now as your Savior, you'll meet Him later as your judge. But meet Him, you will. And the only choice you have is how will you meet Him, as your Savior or as your judge. I'm reminded of a story of a lady who got in a lot of legal trouble and, and, and she needed a lawyer, but she wasn't worried about it because uh, she knew a lawyer who was great at, at what he'd done and what she was facing. She thought, I've known him for years. I'll go to him. 
Uh, he can handle this. He'll win this case. Hands down, not worried about it. So she put it off. Well, the time began to approach for the trial date. She thought, I need to go visit with this lawyer. So she went to visit with him and only had just a, a week or two left. And she got to his office only to find out that he no longer was a lawyer. Now he was a judge. Well, she uh, said, well, that you know, this is wonderful. I'm so glad that I'm going to be able to come before you. And this is what he told her. He said, my dear lady, had you come to me sooner, I could have defended you. But now all I can do is judge you. Well, listen to me. Friend, one of these days, those who have procrastinated and put off their decision to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to stand before Him and they're going to cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I could have saved you. I would have saved you had you come to me sooner. But I can no longer save you. Now all I can do is judge you. In the Old Testament, He's the suffering Jesus. In the Gospels, He's the saving Jesus. In the book of Acts, He's the spirit Jesus. Folks, in the epistles, He's the sanctifying Jesus. But understand me, in the book of the Revelation, He is the sovereign Jesus who comes not to save, but to judge. He's the commanding Christ. But number two, look at verse 14 again. He's also the consecrated Christ. Because it says that hair was white like wool, as white as snow. That describes the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this verse takes us back again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Sin stains us, sin blots us. But the blood of Jesus can make us pure and white as snow. Pure and white as bleached wool. So this refers to purity, to cleanliness, to uh, holiness. It refers to the perfect sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. As man, Jesus knew what it was to be tempted. But as God, he never knew what it was to give in to that sin and to, to sin. Jesus was not, and people have said this, well, he was pure. I've heard preachers say he's pure as the driven snow. Oh, no, no, no. Driven snow is not pure. Because it's, it has, it's contaminated as it passes through the atmosphere. Friend, Jesus had no contamination whatsoever. He was pure as pure. There's no definition of purity that can define the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without sin. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus is the only man who ever lived who, folks, he never had a guilty conscience? Now, if you hear it say, well, I've never had a guilty conscience, tell me how you do that. I've never met somebody who didn't have a guilty conscience. Jesus, again, the only man who ever lived never had a guilty conscience. He's the only man who ever lived who didn't have to confess sin. Now, Jesus forgave sin. Uh, but he never had to forsake sin. He was purely perfect and perfectly pure. He was a man of grace and a man of glory, but he was never a man of guilt. Now think about some of the greatest people, some of the greatest men in the Bible. They were also some of the guiltiest men. Think about Isaiah. After Isaiah had his vision of the Lord, you remember what Isaiah said? He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, a man after God's own heart in Psalm 51.3, he said, I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. The greatest preacher who ever lived, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, of all sinners, I am chief. 
Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Remember, I preached on this not long ago. He taught us how to pray. Forgive us our sins. But He never had to pray, forgive me of my sins. In fact, when the Lord Jesus was dying on the cross, what did He pray? Father, forgive me? No. Father, forgive them. Never once was He known to pray for forgiveness. He is sinless. Uh, we're told in uh, Hebrews four fifteen, at all points He was tempted as we are yet, Without sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, we have a high priest fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Uh, you remember when Judas betrayed Jesus in Matthew 27, 4? Je- uh, Judas knew that he betrayed more than mere man because he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The only person could ever been, that could ever have been said about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Innocent blood. The suffering servant of the Old Testament, folks, is the sinless Savior of the New Testament. I ain't touched nothing. All right. The commanding Christ, the consecrated Christ. Number three, I want you to look at verse 14, the second part of verse 14. He is the, I guess I would say comprehending, all-knowing Christ. All right, look at what it says. We're told his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, this refers to the all-knowing wisdom. I think the, the correct word, it's kind of an ancient word, uh, sagacity. Is that right, some of you English folks? I probably butchered it because I rednecked it. But I believe that's the word that I'm looking for. And it speaks of wisdom, of knowing. It talks about the perception. So what I'm saying, when I say the comprehending Christ, and we read in verse 14 again, His eyes are like a flame of fire, that speaks of His perception, His judgment, and His discernment. He's never wrong. What He believes is right. What He sees is always right. What does it mean? All right, eyes like a flame of fire. Well, what does fire do? It penetrates. All right? Fire burns through things. So today, we would say, instead of eyes like a flame of fire, we say head x-ray vision. Have you ever met somebody who could stare right through you? I mean, they could just look right through you. That's the picture that we have here of Jesus. He has eyes of fire that can burn a hole right through your heart. Now, you know that fire, folks, is hot. If it is hot enough, it can burn through almost anything. And what we're being told here is that nothing is going to be hidden from the Lord Jesus Christ in the day that He returns. Jesus sees it all. He hears it all. He knows it all. And in that day when He returns... We're told in uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 17, nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. I remember reading one time of a, a small rural country town, and in this town, you know, it was one of these towns where everybody knew everybody else, and they knew everybody else's business. Well, in this town, they had a newspaper, and this newspaper had a motto, and it was printed in bold type at the top of every edition, and it said, if you don't want it printed, don't let it happen. Well, listen to me, friend. If you don't want to be judged by your words, you better not say them. You don't want to be judged by your thoughts, you better not thank them because every secret will be revealed. Jesus knows. I remember reading about uh, former President Nixon. The, he said the biggest mistake he ever made in his life, he made some doozies, but he said the biggest mistake he ever made in his life, he said, was not burning those Watergate tapes. And this is what he said. Because if I had just burned them, nobody would have ever known. Well, friend, he's wrong. Jesus would have known. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 13, 
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. That's what it's saying. He is the all-knowing Christ. Once you look at verse 15 now. He's the condemning Christ. Now, this is a picture of Jesus, side of Jesus. We don't ever want to think about the fact that Jesus does condemn. I've already told you he's the judge, and he's going to be the only judge. And everybody will be judged. We're told in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if burned in a furnace. That means refined in a furnace. This picture, folks, it refers to the severity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, brass was a symbol of judgment. It was a symbol of the judgment of God on sin. All of the instruments that were used in the outer court of the tabernacle, they were made of brass. The altar for the burnt offering was made of brass. The laver where the high priest, the priest would wash their hands, it was made of brass. All the utensils that were used, the tongs and all those instruments, they were made of brass. Again, because that represents the judgment of God upon sin. So I'm going to say it again, folks. Jesus is the judge. Let me explain to you. Sometimes I think we get the idea that God the Father is going to be the judge. That's not the case. Jesus himself said, John 5, 22, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You know, I believe there are some people, there are some people who hope that they're going to be able to sneak by Jesus and get, you know, God the Son and get to God the Father. You say, why do you say that? Because I've heard people make these comments before. That, well, you know, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe Jesus is God. Somehow, they think they can perhaps appeal to a higher authority by going around the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friend, here's the problem with that line of thinking. There is no higher authority than Jesus. Jesus is going to judge the sinner who refused his love, just like he's going to judge Satan who rose up and rebelled against his lordship. All judgment is committed to the Son. Now, I realize many people don't like this picture of a severe Jesus. Again, they prefer to think of Jesus, gentle uh, gentle Jesus, you know, meek and mild, Mary's little lamb. Well, I want to remind you, and you know this, that Jesus was not only the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah that will judge the sins of this world. He is the condemning Christ. But I want you to see the next part of the picture we're given. The communicating Christ. Look at verse 15, the second part. We're told His voice is as the sound of many waters. Now this refers to the integrity of Jesus. You know, not everybody listens. (laughs) Not everybody listens when the preacher speaks. I've seen people nod off. I know it's hard to believe as loud as I am that that people nod off, but I promise you it happens. Ask Bentley. I'm sure he faces it too. He's louder than I am. People nod off. Not everybody listens to the preacher, but I want to tell you something, friend. When Jesus comes, when Jesus speaks, everybody is going to listen to what he has to say. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in John 5, 28, it reminds us, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now, friend, all... I think we'd all agree with this. A voice, that's for communication purposes. It's how we express ourselves to one another. And when the Lord Jesus returns this to this earth, I'm going to tell you, He's got a few things He's going to say to this earth, and everybody's going to listen to what He says. This voice is going to be unlike any voice you've ever heard in your life. 
Now, I believe the Holy Spirit had Psalm 29, 3 and 4 in mind when he gave this description to John. It says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Can you imagine a voice that is so commanding? That, that is so much, I can't even describe it, but it's a voice that's so commanding that the world stops on its axis. That the planets, they just, they just come to a halt in their orbit. I'm telling you, everyone, both alive and dead, are going to be able to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to the saint, that's going to be a voice of joy and victory. But to the sinner, those who don't know Christ, it's going to be a voice of judgment and a voice of doom. Listen to the awesome picture that the prophet Jeremiah paints. Jeremiah 25, 30. He says, The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against the foe. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, did you catch what he's saying? What he is telling us is that he is going to be speaking. The Lord's going to be speaking against the earth. And what he has to say in that day, folks, everybody's going to hear. And I want to assure you that what Jesus says on that day, uh, it's not going to have a whole lot to do with positive thinking, self-improvement, or self-esteem. All right? Let me remind you, he's coming as a sovereign king. He's coming as a ruler. He's coming as a judge. We go on to read verse 31 of Jeremiah 25. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. Listen to this. He will plead with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Not only will ever I see the Lord Jesus on that day, but every ear is going to hear him as well. It's a voice like many waters. Now listen to me. There's not going to be any argument, no debate on that day with the Lord Jesus. He's going to be the only one doing the talking. And everybody else is going to be quiet and they're going to listen. There'll be no argument. There'll be no debating. I want you to think about this, folks. Can you imagine arguing with Niagara Falls? How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? I know Susan just recently went. It's deafening. Now, can you imagine standing at the foot of Niagara Falls where some 12 million cubic feet of water come across those falls every minute? Standing there with that water roaring down every minute and trying to argue with a thunderous voice like that. Now, how foolish is that? I want to tell you, in that day, there'll be no argument, there'll be no debate, no discussion. All will listen to what the Lord has to say. For the first time, all the world, everybody dead and alive, is going to hear what Jesus said. I want you to see the next thing we're shown in the picture is the fact that he's the controlling Christ. Look at verse 16. It says he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, there's been a lot of debate over this over the years, but I'm going to tell you the way I understand this and why I believe this. This refers to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as kids, I don't know if they still sing this song or not, but we used to sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands, got the whole wide world in his hands. Well, let me tell you something, friend. Jesus not only has the whole world in his hand, he's got the whole universe in his hand. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, by him all things consist and by him all things are held together. So the very stars in their positions, the very planets in their orbits are held and guided by his sovereign hand. But I'm going to tell you, there is another greater symbolic meaning here. I want you to look at verse 20. 
it tells us these stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, folks, I believe the angels of the seven churches there, it represents the pastors of the seven churches. Say, so why do you say that? Because it's actually translated messengers, the messengers of the seven churches. So just like the lampstands represent the churches themselves, I believe the stars represent the pastors of those churches. And what it's saying is Jesus holds in his very hand at this very moment his church. His people, his ministers, his servants, his preachers, his pastors, and we need to remember that. And the reason I say we need to remember that is because, listen, this church here, this is not my church. It is not your church. As a matter of fact, it's not our church. According to what the Bible says, it's his church. He controls it. He's the one that holds it. Don't worry for one minute about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I realize there are some doomsday prophets and soothsayers who say that, that they're predicting that the church and Christianity is going to fade into oblivion in the next few years. Now, hear me hear me well. I do believe the church here in America is in trouble. I do believe that. But the church is never going to fade into oblivion. We're going to be taken out of this world to glory one day. But the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be destroyed or fade away. I say the church in America is in trouble, it is. I believe if some things don't change here in America, church as we know it and church as we are used to doing it is going to cease to exist. It's going to change. Who knows? It may get back to the day like with the apostles when we were meeting in houses under cover of night because it was illegal to even say the name Jesus. So I don't believe that happened in America. If I told you 35 years ago, some of the things that have transpired in America in the past 10 years, you probably said, I don't believe that ever happened. They have happened. But I want to tell you this, folks. I got some good news for you. Jesus Christ is in complete control. No matter what happens with the church, there's always going to be a faithful remnant. There's always going to be, if it maybe it's just a few, but there's always going to be a faithful remnant. Christ is in complete control. He's in control over celestial forces, spiritual forces, uh, Political forces, financial forces. You see, not one thing, when it comes to the sovereignty of Christ, the controlling of Jesus Christ, there's not one thing that is out of His control. There's not one thing, folks, uh, that is overlooked. Now, there'll be some things overruled because of His sovereignty, but not overlooked. I'm, I, and I believe this. I heard somebody say this one time, and I agree with them. I believe... <coughs> I believe the eighth wonder of the modern world is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do. Look at what the church has been through over the years, but here it stands. There's a little poem that says, One holy church of God appears to every age and race, unwasted by the lapse of years, unchanged by changing place. The church of the living God has survived persecutions from without and problems from within for 2,000 years. It has survived. Sometimes it's been infected by heresy. Sometimes it's been neglected by her members. Other times it's been defected by sin. But the church still remains. The church of the living God is still here. It's still held up. It's still protected by His hand. Sometimes stumbling but never falling and always rising to stand again. Just see the next thing. Look at verse 16, the second part. He's the conquering Christ. We read it says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This refers to 
for lack of a better word, the ferocity of Christ. A sword in Scripture is a symbol of what? It's a symbol of war and death. It's a symbol of battle. One of these days, the Lord Jesus is going to come back, and He's going to do battle with the nations of this world, and He only has one weapon. And it says the sword that proceeds out of His mouth. Well, that right there in itself gives you a clue what that sword is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 reminds us, says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So understand, God's Word is a weapon, folks, that will either cut you for conviction to be saved, or it will cut you down if you refuse to be saved. But I'm going to tell you, God's Word cuts either way. It will cut to bless, or it will cut to bleed. And Jesus is coming back one day to do battle. He's coming back to fight the battle that will end the war. And the sword, He's going to bring back with Him. A sword's for fighting. Think about this. And Jesus tells us, here it is, Revelation 2, 16. Tells us about the sword. I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now the Lord Jesus is coming back to wage war. Get this picture. He's a commanding, conquering, reigning sovereign. He's not coming as a savior. He's coming as a judge and a commander. He's coming as a ruler. I've said it before. He's not coming to take sides. <laughs> He's coming to take over. Now get this picture. He's coming back to wage war. He is not coming back to lay down his sword and surrender because Jesus Christ never loses. He's coming to take vengeance, the Bible says, on every tribe, every nation that rejected him. Now the purpose of the sword, folks, is clear. We read Revelation 19.15. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. The only weapon that Jesus has is the Word of God. You know why? Because that's the only weapon He needs. Why do you think in Ephesians chapter 6, when we're told to put on the whole armor of God, the only weapon that we're given is the word of the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? You realize why that's the only weapon we're given? Because that's the only weapon that we need. You see, nothing can stand before the Word of God. I want you to think about this. When God spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light, darkness flees. When Jesus spoke and healed people, he said, be healed, the disease flees. I'm telling you, nothing stands before the word of God. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, death took a holiday, took a vacation. When Jesus told Satan, get thee behind me, Satan ran like a scared rat. I'm going to tell you, folks, the one thing the world, the one thing the devil, they hate and they've tried to destroy it from the beginning of time is the Word of God. But I want to make it real clear, folks. When the last battle's fought, when the smoke is cleared, the one thing that'll be standing over the corpses of her enemies is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It will never be defeated. He's not only the conquering Christ, but look at the last sentence of verse 16. I believe we can say he's the compelling Christ. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This simply refers to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. This speaks of the, the Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, he saw this bright, radiant, uh, blinding light. He experienced it firsthand on the Damascus Road. But do you see it says his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength? Now, there are some scholars who believe that what this is referencing is the sun at noonday or midday when the sun's at its highest point in the sky. I disagree with them. 
I don't believe that's what it's talking about. Matter of fact, I believe it refers to the fact that the brightness of the Lord Jesus Christ can be compared to the brightness of the sun in its very beginning when it was first created, shining in its strength. Because you may not know this, but as powerful as the sun is, it's not as powerful today as it was in the days of Jesus. And the sun's not as powerful today, definitely, as it was in the days of Adam when it was first created. Matter of fact, science tells us the sun is losing power. It's losing weight, uh, radiation weight, rate. I got tongue-tied. Radiation weight at a rate, try to say that five times real fast, at a rate of 4,200,000 tons every second. Now, what that means, folks, is that as strong as the sun is today, it's not as strong as it was in the beginning of time. The sun is fading. I, and I say this, I do not believe that I seen, ear has heard, or mind can even imagine the absolute resplendent, radiant glory that's yet to be revealed in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't imagine the glory. It's so brilliant, it's so bright, so illuminating, folks. We're told at the end of this book, then the New Jerusalem, the city of New Jerusalem, there's not going to be any stars to shine, no sun, no moon. Why? Because we're going to walk around in the light of the glory of the Son of God. Now, the final thing, and I'm hurrying here, I'm going to get through. The final thing I want you to see in this picture is that He's the comforting Christ. Now, the last point refers to this serenity, the peace that Jesus brings. When, when John, the beloved disciple, when he saw Jesus, verse 17, it says he fell to his feet as a dead man. He fell down dead. Jesus, you know, today, think about this, he hardly rates a second glance with most people today. But when John saw Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his glory, he fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I believe what this world needs today what the church needs today, what the people of God need today is a new and real vision of Jesus Christ, of who He really is. I'm afraid even among some of the children of God and the people of God, there's too much familiarity and not enough reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I'll prove my point, folks. Today, the name Jesus Christ, it's become a byword. It's a swear word. It's just another slang expression. Well, let me be very clear and very loud on this. If you want to understand Jesus, and if you want to be rightly related to Him, then you need to remember that Jesus is not just Jesus, and Jesus is not just Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Now, I'm telling you, there is no one like Jesus. Never has been, never will be. He's one of a kind. I want you to notice, though, that this commanding, conquering, reigning, sovereign Lord, notice that He compassionately lays His right hand on John's shoulder. Now understand, this in the day, was a, it was a custom, a gesture of comfort. It was a gesture of reassurance. And Jesus tells him, fear not. John, don't be afraid. You don't need to be scared. Now, the reason why John had no reason to be afraid, and let me tell you something, friend, the reason why you and I don't have any reason to be afraid is because verse 18, Jesus tells us, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. 
And then look at the last sentence. And have the keys of hell and death. Jesus said, I'm the one in charge. I'm in control. You know what he was telling John? He said, John, I hold authority over death. I hold authority over hell itself. Therefore, John, no matter what you see and the vision that's to come, no matter what things are going on around you, John, you don't have to be afraid. I'm the ultimate authority. I'm the one in charge. You know, I can see in my mind's eye 2,000 years ago when a monster called death with his bony finger beckoned the Son of God, the Son of God to come to him. And Jesus, not flinching, walked right toward death. And there death threw some cold shack, iron shackles on Jesus. And he bound him and threw him into the tomb. Well, one day passed. Two days passed. Third day came, and guess what? The earth began to shake. And here's death sitting on a throne made of bones with a grim smile on his face, believing that he has defeated the Son of God, mankind's only hope. But the ground begins to shake and quake. And that stone in front of that tomb rolls back. And out steps the living Lord Jesus Christ. The reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And I can just imagine as the throne of bones collapses like a house of cards, death is white with fear. Jesus walks over to him and with a nail-pierced hand, he grabs death by the throat and he drags him back over to the tomb. He throws death on the floor of that tomb and with a nail-pierced foot, he steps on the back of death's neck. He reaches down, he pulls out a stinger and he throws it to the floor. Then Jesus points his finger at the open tomb. And then he says, Death, I had your attention. And he points his finger at him. And then Jesus says loud enough that all heaven and hell can hear. He says, Oh, death, where's thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? And then Jesus takes the authority, the keys of death and hell. And he walks out in victory. Brent, understand something. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, 14, and we're going to cover it, that one of these days Jesus is going to come back and He's going to take death and He's going to take hell, Hades, the abode of the dead, and He's going to throw them both into the bottomless pit. He's going to shut the door and He's going to lock it. Because now and forevermore, friend, He holds the keys. He holds the keys to salvation. Jesus Christ holds the keys to sanctification. He holds the keys to eternal life. But here's the great thing about it. Not only is He the authority and holds the keys, but He is the door. And you know this. And when you walk through that door, when you accept Jesus Christ, then you get to reign with Him forever and ever. And here's the great thing about it. When you know this Jesus that I've been talking about, I mean, really know Him? You never have to fear again. You never have to fear because He holds the keys. Your Master, your Savior, your Lord, He said, I am the final judge and the ultimate authority. John, it's okay. I'm the one in charge. It's going to work out just like I planned. Fear not. Always remember he holds the keys.
Father, we praise you for the victory that we have, for the victory that we can know and experience because of your grace, because of your Son, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I praise you for having John record your words so that we can read and study them. They can be an encouragement to us. They can enlighten us. Father, they can show us so much more than we could ever imagine or dream of. And Father, I pray tonight every person here has seen this picture that is given. And I pray they understand that, that, that Jesus came the first time as a Savior, but he's not coming back as a Savior. He's coming back as a conqueror, a judge, and a reigning king. Father, I pray every person here tonight knows him as their Savior so they do not have to stand before him as their judge. Thank you for your love and grace for being patient with us. Father, thank you for desiring us and placing your love upon us. Even though we're so undeserving, even though we could never buy, beg, borrow, or steal, Father, you showed your love to us. And your desire is that each person be saved. Come to know you through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray for everyone here tonight that they have that relationship. If not, tonight would be the night. In Christ's name, amen.